we find God in the most unexpected of places. God is found in places and in times and in instances where we do not expect God to show up, and yet God does. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of One Woman Preach. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, this podcast exists to empower AAPI and Latinx women faith leaders. For today's episode, we have Reverend Dr. Grace Park joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. So a bit of an introduction is that Reverend Dr. Grace Park was ordained in the PCUSA. She served many different roles in the church as a children's pastor, youth pastor, and an associate pastor. She uh, serves at Cedar sinai Medical Center as a chaplain intern. You're a hospice chaplain as well, and currently sits on the board of New Theological Seminary of the West and is on the Leadership Council of Angel Interfaith Network. So you have quite a lot on your plate, and you seem immersed in ministry. But I did read in your bio that you originally graduated with a degree in political economics. So your path towards ministry was not a linear one. So what was it that prompted you to go down the path of ministry? That's a great lead-in question. Um, so first of all, I, I kind of want to just make a little edit. So I am currently in ministry at a church as well. So I am an associate pastor at um, a community church. And then I do the chaplain internship program hmm. and the hospice chaplaincy on the side. So my main ministry right now is being an associate pastor, um, which is an incredible joy to me. So yes, I uh, did not... If you would have told me uh, 40 years ago when I was, so I'm in my mid to late fifties. And when you were, if you told me when I was a young person that I'd be a minister today, I would have laughed in your face because that was the absolute last thing that was, that was on my mind. Um, after I, so yes, I did major in political economics at Berkeley. And part of that was uh, the season and the time that I was there. It was the beginning of the eighties and Reaganomics was in the spotlight. Um, and I was really fascinated by, um, international relations, actually how countries worked with each other and against each other. And that was fascinating to me. Um, so I chose political economics just simply because it was, it was really part of the, I think the, 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 the time where we were. And, um, but it actually, um, my major is probably one of the greatest regrets that I have in my life. If I could do it over again, I would probably major in art history because it combines two of the things that I love the most, which is art and also history. And so finding out how art, uh, describes and tells us what history is about through through art and through the artist's eyes and what was happening in the world. So, yes, so that was political economics. And so after I graduated, I was actually recruited by um, a large company for an executive training program. And I started that and found myself um, extremely unhappy and, and found myself, the actual moment where I realized that this was business was not for me was I was 
actually sitting in a merchandising meeting in between a buyer and a uh, window designer. And they were having an argument about the shade of green. And one of them thought green was Kelly green. And the other one said it was spring green. And I watched this conversation and I went, I cannot do this anymore. This is just not, (laughs) this is not important to me. So I actually left uh, the business world and I went to uh, work at a school for seriously emotionally disturbed children. Mm -hmm. And so it was a program with Los Angeles Unified School District where kids who were not able to be mainstreamed into the classroom were at a special school. And I became uh, one of the teaching staff there. And it was through my experience there that actually um, that I had a friend, a couple friends who kept saying, you should, you should go to seminary. You should go to seminary. I would think, why would I go to seminary? I don't want to be a pastor. There's no reason for me to go to seminary. And it wasn't until I was teaching a history class at school and I received our textbooks for the following year. And the, the world history textbook, a secular textbook actually began. It's from page one with the beginning of the timeline and, and cited Jesus Christ as what we would call AD and BC. So before Christ and after Christ. And, and I thought that's remarkable. Here is a textbook in a high school that's, that's citing Jesus as a historical figure, recognizing this. And I thought, Hmm, could this be a way that God is talking to me? And so I ended up at seminary with nary the attention intention of becoming a pastor or going through ordination. I thought this was my opportunity that I could ask every single question I had growing up about the Bible and about God and about Jesus. And I kind of looked at it as an opportunity for me just to, to study and to redeem myself as a student and to learn as much as I could. And it turned out truly to be um, the best three years of my life. My time at Fuller Seminary was just a golden, golden, wonderful experience for me. Um, and my husband's always sad when I say that to him. He's like, what? You mean your life with me hasn't been the best of your life? <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's kind of, and, and even when I was going through Fuller, through seminary, um, I really had no idea what I had gotten myself into. I was really, mm-hmm. I loved um, the exegetical classes. I loved the church history classes. I loved the Old Testament courses, loved New Testament um, it was a wonderful process of studying. And it wasn't until I got into our second year where they said, oh, you have to take homiletics. And I was like, what? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Yes, preaching. What? Um, and, and that's when uh, God was beginning to speak to me. And people were like, you need to be a preacher. And I went on to do advanced homiletics. And I went on to be a teaching assistant for homiletics. And um so I think God was just kind of grooming me and speaking to me in ways that in which God knew that I'd be able to process or I'd be able to hear. Um, and so the process certainly wasn't linear. And even after I finished seminary and I started working as a children's pastor, people were saying, well, when are you going to get ordained? And I thought, well, I don't need to be ordained to serve God. I don't need to be, I don't need to be ordained as a political statement or as a feminist statement that I could do this, I was very satisfied with not being ordained. So it was a very slow uh, process in which God, I think, just kind of revealed things to me as time went along. And when God knew that I was ready to be receptive to hearing 
um, what was to unfold in my life. So yes, a very, very uh, circumlocutious route. Yeah. I, I was interested in going back to something that you said earlier about art history, because you said your deepest regret is not majoring in art history. And you sort of described, you know, what that means to you and what that looks like for you. And I think we can agree and believe that God does not waste anything, right? Amen. And, That's right. And so how does that shape your perspective when it comes to you being an associate pastor or does it like, how does that shape sort of your worldview and perspective about our faith? Oh, I love that question that you just asked because one of the foundational parts of my personal theology is that we find God in the most unexpected of places. Mm. God is found in places and in times and in instances where we do not expect God to show up. And yet God does. And I believe that God does that through art, through beauty, through our life around us. And so what I've seen as a pastor is that that is our role as pastors. We're storytellers. We're, we're simply telling the story about God. We're telling the story about Jesus. And how do we make that story come alive to the people we're ministering to, right? And we're, we, we can show people that God shows up in their lives in the most unexpected of ways, places that we don't think. We think that if we go and we sit in a sanctuary and we listen to church music and we listen to a preacher, that that's the way that God is going to show up. Well, yes, for many people, absolutely, sure. But for a lot of people, God does not show up that way. In fact, we're repelled when we're you know, told that that's the way that God shows up because for a lot of people, they've been hurt by the church. So how does God show up? God shows up in so many different ways that, and if we just opened up our imagination to see that that's the way that God's speaking to us, what an incredible experience we'll have, right? I mean, God shows up to us in a great meal, right? You have a food in front of you and it's this great meal and something that you've been looking forward to with fellowship. And you look at this meal and you think, wow, this is bounty. This is beautiful. This is something that I'm going to really take in and experience with every part of who I am. That's God showing up right there. God is showing up and saying, I am providing this bounty for you. I'm providing this fellowship for you. I am in all of this that you're about to experience. And that's, that's how God shows up. So that's a lot of, um, what I hope but my ministry shows um, to people in our church or, or wherever, wherever I am. So that's why, yeah, so that's why I feel like God shows up to us in art. You know, we see, we see God's beauty and we see these little intricacies and delicacies, um, details of life that we would never think of. And the artist shows that to us. We just have to, we have to be present and, and open our eyes and take it in and experience it. That's right. There's so much to unpack there, but I, I want to uh, divert to another, something else that you said, which was that you were perfectly okay with not being ordained right away, right? That, that there are a lot of people who are fighting for that ordination. And so what was your unique journey in that? Yes. Well, I appreciate the fact that there are a lot of people out there that are really fighting for the ordination. I have a, a dear friend right now who has uh, been in the ordination process for a while and is really struggling to get through some of the exams and has this sense of 
sadness and discouragement and frustration. And I feel for him. And I know that. So when we have the sense of outer calling, when we know that God wants us to do something and we're trying so desperately to get there, there's a sense of frustration when it doesn't happen on our, on our timeline. Um, and I've certainly experienced that in other places of my life, um, in other areas of my life, certainly with, with my children or, or other experiences. Um, and for some, for some reason, Joanna, um, the ordination process was something that I felt like everything else in my life that God would reveal in God's time. And it was something that I had uh, a great sense of peace about that. I knew that the process would take its course when it needed to and things would happen. And and that's not to say that I kind of sat back and reclined and just didn't do anything. I was certainly um, trying to take the, the pieces and move them forward. Um, but for some reason there was a sense of peace that, that would happen when it was the right time um, and that God would reveal the right people and the right places and the right manner in which it was to happen. And so I hope that that's also something that our friends who uh, are in the ordination process can remember that, um, that, that the process is the journey right? Right. Process of the journey that we have to really be thankful for the process that we're in. Even at times when it becomes really unbearable and frustrating and um, anxiety provoking, that we have to believe that if we have received this inner calling, that at some point that outer calling is going to match. But at where, at what point on the timeline that outer calling is going to match, we are not in control of. And we have to be at peace with things that we can't control. Um, it's like a Venn diagram. So it's, there's, here's what you can control and here's what's really matters. And the Venn diagram brings these things together. And there's a very tiny sliver of what we control and what really matters. And all the other stuff is kind of superfluous. So it's part of our discernment process to say, what's, What's what we can control and what's what really matters? And then how can we really make this little tiny sliver in the middle where they come together? How can we make that matter? So how do you? <laughs> how do you make that matter? I'm like 56 <laughs> years old and I'm just still trying to figure that out. Um, it is. It's just I think it's a matter of us really, you know, we, we keep saying that to ourselves, that we have to be at peace and we have to embrace where we are. And it really it's so much easier said than done, isn't it? It's just, it really is. But it's something that I think that we have to mindfully remind ourselves of, that we have to actually mindfully let go of these things that we, we can't control. I'm learning that as a mom of adult children, that I've done my best and I, I did what I could. And then I have to let go and trust that God is going to take care of. It's like the process where um, you're driving into a car wash, the kind of the self car washes mm -hmm. and you drive in and you see the swishing brushes and you put your money in and you drive in. And at some point you put your car in neutral and the gears underneath the car take you through that car wash. And you have to trust that that's that, that slow process of getting through that car wash when you're in neutral and it's moving at its own pace, that God is in there 
that God is coming in that unexpected place and is moving at God's pace and not Mm. our pace. Yeah, I guess there's that delicate balance, right, between like, there can still be peace within the process, but it also doesn't mean that we just need to like settle on it being okay when it shouldn't be, right? But then also having that discernment to engage in that process with God, with timing and movement and when to stop and when to start and those types of things. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And you've made a great transition to anything in our lives. So when we see injustice that is occurring, when we see inequity that is occurring, where can we take action and believe that things are going to move forward as frustratingly slow as they can be? Where can we see, where can we enact justice in our lives? Where can we make a difference in recycling? We, we talk about global warming now and we talk about how this earth is in grave danger and then you look at your own little pile of of garbage and you think well this isn't gonna do any good it is and every single individual counts and every single action counts and so how do we remember that 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 we have to do what we can and engage in however much we can and trust that process I wonder because you're a chaplain or a hospice chaplain Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I would imagine Mm -hmm. that you're then dealing with or ministering to a lot of people who are very sick. And so how do you minister to them to embrace their situation Mm -hmm. or where they're at when that's Mm -hmm. so hard to do, you know, and to have peace with that? Yeah. That's such a good question. So I guess my answer would come in two parts. The first one is that we have to remember that when we're in any caring uh, ministry, and I consider caring ministries to be a very broad term. I think that attorneys are in caring ministries. I, I believe that business people are in caring ministries. We're, we're, we're ministering to another person in some way. But when we enter into a caring ministry, for instance, such as being a chaplain, um, or being with somebody who is in hospice, we have to recognize that we are not the fixers. We, we, we cannot take it upon us to fix the situation. That's what I've really learned in um, just as a neophyte in being a chaplain. And our first intuition, I think, our first instinct as helping people and as wounded healers is that we want to fix, we want to make it better. We want to somehow swoop in and rescue and, and change things. And oftentimes we cannot do that. And so the one thing that I've, I've been learning, I'm in the process of learning. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to learn is that we cannot fix and we have to meet people exactly where they are, wherever they might be emotionally, spiritually, physically, we recognize and we stand present in that moment. And sometimes for someone who is dying, that means simply holding their hand and letting them know that they are not alone and having them um, have somebody in that tender and sacred moment. That is the most that we can do. And that is a lot. It's a lot. And so I'm learning that I have to be able to sit with that and not fix it, but be present in that moment 
for that person and meet that person exactly where they are and stay there and hover there with them. If they're there in anger, if they are in their unforgiveness, if they are in tremendous anxiety, fighting the natural compulsion to say, no, 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 everything's going to be okay. Or no, 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 you have to forgive this person. Or no, 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 it has to be this way. Recognizing that that's where they are and walking with them. Because that's what Jesus did for us, right? And so we're, we're modeling we're modeling who Jesus was, and we're simply trying to do that in our ministry as, as chaplains. We're, we're meeting people where they are, and we're hovering there mm. with them. Wow, that's powerful what you said, because I feel like it's living out the way that Jesus mourned with people, mm. right? right. To, right? He mourned with those who mourn. He didn't try to fix it or... Right. To get them to, That's to right. deny what they were actually feeling, but he was encouraging us to lament and to be honest about our lament to him. That's right. And Jesus was the greatest healer. Mm. And this is a model of Jesus who was the greatest healer, who could do anything, sat and was with people. That's the greatest. I mean, we look at the, the passage in Mark that says Jesus wept. That's right. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And so that's what we're called to do. But can you describe how your two contexts meet together? Like you're associate pastor in a church. And the, I, I would imagine that the type of people that you minister to are very different from the type from the people that you minister to in the chaplain setting. Um, or they might be the same, who knows, but they're, they're dealing with different things. And so how, how does those two merge together for you? Ah, very easily, Joanna, because I think that we're all dealing with the same stuff. I think mm, no matter humanity. humanity, yeah, we're broken. We're flawed. We are broken. We're hurting. We're in need of healing. And so, yes, that looks different at times because at times it could be a physical ailment. But a lot of times we're dealing with a lot of emotional crap. We're dealing with psychological stuff. We're dealing with a lot of issues. They just manifest differently, right? And so um, it's very easy for me. So to answer your question, it's very easy for me to, to bring those two together because um, we're, just, we're just trying to ask God to show up in our lives. We're just trying to ask God to show up in our lives. And, and how does that look? How does that look like? So no matter whether I'm working with an elder or in my church or a deacon or planning an event at, at our church, or I'm going to visit someone who just found out that they um, had a bad result from a test or they just came out of surgery, how is, how is God going to show up in that situation? So that's kind of the way that I look at ministry as a whole. Mm-hmm. That question. That's I, the goal. Yeah. I think that what you said is how can we reveal the hand of God to people seems to be the underlying current of how you move and navigate the spaces that you're in um, and respond to people. And I love that. I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. That's the goal. I hope so. My my kids might tell you differently, but (laughs) that's the goal. That is the goal. I hope that, um, you know, you just hope that when people come away from interacting with you, that you feel, they feel like, yeah, 
there's a possibility that God might exist in this world. Mm. You know? Mm. So that's the hope. Yeah. So I have one last question for you. Your dissertation was on clergy self-care through interfaith dialogue and community. So Mm. can you tell us about that Mm. and what that means? I'd be glad to. So I entered into a doctor of ministry program um, after a very difficult season that I experienced at my church. Um, I won't go into the details, but it was... um, a very, very difficult time for our church, very, very painful for the people in our church. And I was um, left as ad hoc. It just by default, I was left as the only pastor uh, to minister to the folks of the church. And it turned out to be a long season. Um, and um, after our church had gone through this, this very traumatic event for the church, um, I decided to enter into this doctor of ministry program. And I really did that as an act of self-care because I felt like I had gone through a very difficult season in ministry. And I felt like, you know what, I'm going to do this as an act of self-care for myself. And then when the time came for us to decide on what our dissertation project was going to be, I actually had quite a few things that I thought, whoa, I could write, I could write volumes on this. What it ended up being was um, the realization that I had undergone a very difficult season of ministry, but I had undergone it alone. And it was very, very difficult. And the way that I survived it was by reaching out to other clergy who were in the neighborhood of we have in, in my neighborhood where my church is, there's eight or nine other houses of worship that are Jewish, Catholic, um, we have a self-realization temple. We have a church of uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, Episcopal. So very different denominations, different religions. And I became friends with those clergy. And they actually helped me get through a lot of the difficult season. So as my dissertation began to develop, um, it was a very, very natural process for me to come to this place where I realized that so it, it so the dissertation focuses on two spotlights two issues first that being a clergy leader is very lonely and very difficult and too often we have leaders not just in um, religion in the in the area of religion but we have leaders worldwide who uh, for one reason or another undergo uh, difficult seasons and they they feel like or they have to go through it alone and it becomes even more difficult as we know leadership is already really difficult and leadership is already really lonely um and uh it makes it even more challenging when you feel alone and you are alone and you don't feel that you have any support so that that spotlights one part part of the dissertation excuse me and the other part of the dissertation is what I discovered in part of my self-care was that um, it really helps if clergy are in some sort of community. And where my dissertation came that it was interfaith was because that's what happened around me organically. These folks from these other houses of worship came and they supported me in ways that was so refreshing um, because I was able to see leadership from very different points of view, not just from a one 
a Presbyterian church um, to not just, you know, it was very, very varied. And so, um, so that's kind of what my dissertation focuses on. One, that leadership is really lonely and we need to be in community. And two, hey, have you ever thought of entering into an interfaith dialogue where you're learning from other clergy leaders, you're learning from other faith leaders, you're learning about what works for them, what hasn't worked for them. And how about if you enter into a community, a covenant community, whatever that looks like for you, once a week, once a month, lunches or whatever, whatever that looks like for you, so that you can feel like you're not alone in this. So you can feel like you can really get through something that's difficult with other resources, other answers, other points of view, so that you know that there's other people that are praying for you, that are thinking of you, that are walking with you. So that's that's kind of how my dissertation came to be. And I am um, living it. I, I hope that I continue to live it, that I will always remember that community is, is really important uh, because it, it really wasn't before to me. I really thought I was doing okay. And, but, and it wasn't until my church went through this great crisis where I realized um, that you, you just, you need a lot of support. You need encouragement. You need people there who know exactly what you're going through and can normal, normalize your feelings too. So that you can say this happened and they're like, oh yeah, I get that. So you feel the normalization that's occurring. And, and you really need that. And, and to look for places, it's just, it's continuation of the idea of my theology that look for things where they're unexpected. So look for that support in places that are not expected. As women, we might think that it's all from a group of women or as Presbyterians, I might think that I've got to be in a group of Presbyterian pastors. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case for me at all. I was really welcomed by these other clergy members and uh, we've developed this wonderful covenant relationship where we um, uh, can support one another. So how did you even think to start looking outside of the Christian circle? So, like I said, so in our neighborhood, we had, you know, a group of these churches and I knew these other clergy leaders. I I knew them, um, you know, kind of, we were cordial, we were friendly, but I sought them out. So I went and I literally knocked on doors, sent emails out, called and said, can I, can I meet you for lunch? Can we sit down and talk? And these folks were so loving and warm and caring and um, really responded to me and came in and supported me in ways that I doubt that they'll understand how much it means to me, but just, they, they were there, they were there, they were willing to be present and they were there and they were willing to listen. And, you know, and it was such a gift. It was such a gift. And they, they made themselves available to me. Mm. So, yeah. I love that. Yeah. It really was a lifesaver in many ways. Thank you so much for sharing. Absolutely. It's been my honor. I feel so privileged to spend this time with you. Same. (laughs) And I think everybody else who listens to this will too. I think some of the golden nuggets that we got out of this was that looking for God in the unexpected and finding Mm. him in those places. Thank you so much. Absolutely.
If you'd like to support Isaac in producing this podcast or our overall mission of supporting AAPI and Latina women ministers, you can donate to Isaac at isaacweb.org.